We're reading uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they'd cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. There's something really powerful about watching somebody getting ready for a big event in their lives. Wedding photographers, they know this, right? So they get up at the crack of dawn, come and see the bride and the party, follow them around, take these candid photos when they're getting their hair done and whatever else it is that they get up to on those mornings. Boxing promoters, they know this as well. If there's a big fight coming up, you often have a documentary crew following the fighters around 24-7 in the build-up for days and weeks as they're getting ready for the fight. Now, among the many similarities between weddings and heavyweight title fights, there's the interest. There's the interest in seeing how somebody gets ready for something massive in their lives. We can look at them, we can see it in their eyes, their thoughts and feelings, and we can learn a lot about that person. So in the reading we've had today, we've seen Jesus coming to Jerusalem. He knows, as Helen said already, without a doubt, where he's going. He knows what's waiting for him. This is the calm before the storm. This is the end game. This is the last stage of the mission that he came to achieve. Within days, he's going to be arrested 
and he's going to be crucified. And how he behaves in these moments that we've looked at today show us some really important things about Jesus Christ. And whatever stage we're at in our relationship with him, whether we have one or not, these verses contain a challenge for us this morning. And they lay out three things that I want to look at. The clarity of his claim, the starkness of his judgment, and the fullness of what he calls us to do. So first, the clarity of his claim. So in this country, and in the West more generally, it's pretty much impossible now to go through life without hearing anything about Jesus. So people who don't want us to know him can't rely on us never hearing about it. They don't try to ignore it. Instead, they try and get out in front of it, don't they? They try and undermine what Jesus is, to take the message that they know we're going to hear and pollute it. They try and change it so that it's not going to land with us. And one key way that they do that is they try and minimize who Jesus was. They go after the man himself. When I was a boy, it was expressed like this. Well, Jesus, he was a great moral teacher. You've heard that one, right? You're being nice about it, so I can't get upset, but you're undermining him. He's a spiritual man, a guru, a teacher, a great man, but nothing more. You've probably also heard the response to that argument, which is, well, look in the Bible. Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah. He says that he's God's son. He says that he's God. And so saying he's just a good moral teacher doesn't stack up. The writer C.S. Lewis uh, expressed it in my favorite way. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or else something worse. You might have heard the shorter version. Jesus must have been bad, he must have been mad, or he must have been God. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. It's a convincing response, right, to a bad argument. It's actually become very well known. And it actually means that now I never hear the good moral teacher line anymore, or very rarely. Actually, these days, the fashionable way to do it is to add in a claim that Jesus never actually said that he was any of those things. They know that if they say, well, Jesus was just a man, and we counter and say, no, he said he was God, they know where that argument goes. So in fact, they get out ahead of it, and they say, well, he never, if you read it closely... He didn't really say that he was God. When he said he was God's son, well, aren't we all God's children? That's what he meant. Any verse you can find that looks like Jesus is explicitly claiming to be God's chosen king, well, translation is very difficult. And that is quite a sneaky argument because... Jesus was often quite indirect in the way that he spoke. He tells the disciples explicitly that he uses parables so that he won't have to speak so directly. So that argument can get a foothold in our lives. It can start to undermine who Jesus claims to be. And that's deadly. That's deadly. And it's designed specifically to target people right at the start when they're interested when they want to find out who Jesus was, when they might decide to look into the claims of the Bible, because if Jesus was just a guy, 
If Jesus just had some insights into the human condition, eh, I'll get round to it when I get round to it. We can keep that on the back burner over there. But if Jesus really did claim to be the Messiah, if he really did claim to be God, then as C.S. Lewis said, you must make your choice. You may believe him, you may not believe him, but it's not safe to leave it over there. It's an urgent claim. It's something you must look at. So let me be as emphatic as I can possibly be right now. There is no doubt at all that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. There's no doubt that he claimed to be God. That nasty, sneaky argument can and does twist Jesus' words into pretzels to make itself stand up. But it doesn't change the things that he did. And that's where we come to our passage. Look at verses 1 to 3 with me. Jesus and his disciples are heading towards Jerusalem. It's coming up to the Passover festival. Lots of Jews would have been heading that way. This is one of the times of year, one of the holy days, uh, when um, Jewish people would make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. It's a busy time. And Jesus suddenly has a very specific requirement for transportation. Verse 1, so he sends two disciples into the village to find him a donkey's colt. And not just to track one down, not just to find one, verse 2, but to find the one that he knows will be there. And what explanation does he give, verse 3? Well, the Lord needs it. Once the animal's brought back and he sits on it, he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. We all know this story, right? So look again. This is deliberate. This is not a coincidence. There wasn't a donkey stood around. Jesus didn't feel tired and want to lift. He doesn't give any reason except, I need to do it. Why? Well, very deliberately and very specifically, he wants to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Because 500 or so years previously, a man called Zechariah was given a prophecy. And in that prophecy, uh, it's chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah, if you need to fact-check me, uh, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's what I mean when I talk about the clarity of Jesus' claim. Jesus very deliberately chooses to come into Jerusalem this way. Why? Because that's how Zechariah had said that God's chosen king, the Messiah, would come to Jerusalem. And it's that simple. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, that's what the book says, so that's what Jesus does. It's not subtle. This isn't like a Marvel movie throwing a visual reference to some other character into the background just for the hardcore fans to get really excited about. Definitely not me. This is like Will and Kate in Jamaica standing in the back of the Land Rover. The association that they were making was absolutely crystal clear. And so is this. Don't take my word for it. Look at the reaction of the crowd. They're spreading cloaks and leaves on the road. That's what you do for somebody of the highest status. Not some itinerant preacher on a donkey. And then look at what they're shouting in verses 9 and 10. Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a direct quote from Psalm 118. It's another prophecy of the Messiah. Blessed is the coming kingdom 
of our father David. Why? Because the prophecies of the Messiah talk about him re-establishing David's kingdom, coming from David's line. To the people who knew the prophecies, it was crystal clear what Jesus was doing. There's no question about it. There's no question who he's claiming to be. His claim is absolutely clear. That's the example that we have from the passage this morning, but the Gospels are absolutely loaded with these moments. Time and time again, Jesus consistently chooses to do the things and to do things in a way that identifies him as the Messiah, God's promised king, as the Son of God, and as God himself. So this argument that people try to run that Jesus never claims to be anything more than just a human, it's simply not true. So let me speak to you now if if you're on the fringes, if you've got Jesus on the back burner, because you can get round to that at some point, and you'll look into it when you get a chance. And let me tell you directly, Jesus did not claim to be a moral teacher that you can factor into your worldview later on. Jesus constantly and deliberately claimed to be God. Jesus claimed that his death on the cross was the only thing that could make us right with God because of who he was. Jesus claimed that was the only way to be spared from hell. Now, when you look into these things, you may or may not agree with those claims. That's a decision that only you can make. But that is his claim, and that claim is clear. And if those are the stakes, then this is an urgent question. So if that's where you are this morning, the challenge for you from this passage is don't wait and see. Take the chance. Look into it. The second challenge uh, in our passage this morning is for different people, and and here we're dealing with the starkness of Jesus' judgment. This is our second insight into his character, and I'm sorry, but we have to address it. We have to talk about the fig tree. This is a passage that people don't like very much, um, and, uh, well, hopefully we can do something about that this morning. So, again, back back in the passage, verse 12, Jesus was hungry. Fair enough. Verse 13, he sees a fig tree, and it's in leaf. But still, verse 13, when he gets closer, he finds that this particular tree may be in leaf, but there's no fruit there. And so, verse 14, he curses the tree. And we see later on um, that the fig tree has indeed withered. It will never bear fruit again, which was the curse that Jesus made. People really don't like this story. It's difficult for us to process, isn't it? It looks to our eyes like a temper tantrum, for want of a better word. But I promise you it's not. And if that's why you're uncomfortable with this passage, then in a few minutes' time, we'll have solved that. Throughout the years, commentators have struggled to make sense of this. I read one that went into great detail about the the calendar for fruit trees in that part of the world at that time and thought that maybe there were a couple of fruiting seasons around the time of the Passover and so, you know, actually, he probably should have... No, nonsense. We're told in verse 13, aren't we? It's not the season for figs. So what are we meant to learn from this? What are we meant to learn from Jesus looking for something that he knew wouldn't have been there and then seemingly taking it out on on the tree? Well, um, the reason I asked for Mark's account of this day to be read rather than, uh, as Obi said, in any of the other three presentations in the other Gospels 
is actually because of the way that he presents this particular passage, because it is so difficult. We see the curse in verse 14, and then we see the confirmation of it later. But in between, we see something entirely different. And the way that the fig tree is presented around that incident helps us to understand why Jesus did what he did. So what's the incident in the middle? Well, verse 15, Jesus and the disciples go into the temple courts and they drive out the money changers, the dove sellers, and the merchants. So the fig tree here is a parable. It's a parable being acted out. Jesus has a point to make to his disciples and through them and the gospel writers on to us. And as so often, he's giving us a picture that we can understand. But rather than teaching a point and telling a story, he takes an action and he takes an action to explain it. A physical picture of what the action means. The fig tree stands for the temple. The fig tree is our explanation of what goes on in Jerusalem. So let's look again with that in mind. Verse 13, Jesus sees the fig tree and leaf in the distance. If you're hungry, that's the sight that you want to see. The leaves suggest that there will be fruit. That's when you have leaves, you have fruit generally. From a distance, this looks like a fig tree that will have figs. It looks like a fig tree that's doing what a fig tree is meant to do. And from a distance, Jerusalem and the temple look like they're doing what they're meant to do. The temple courts are crowded. There's the bustle of a thriving religion, particularly, as we said, at this time of year. The pilgrims have come back. It's busy. And that's what they were made for. This is the city of David. This is the temple that Solomon built, that God blessed with his own presence. This is the temple that Haggai and Ezra rebuked Israel for not rebuilding first before their own houses when they started to restore Jerusalem. This is the center of worship for the people that God has chosen to be his people. It is absolutely made to be busy. And it's busy. And yet, verse 13b, when Jesus reached the tree, he found nothing but leaves. No fruit. What had looked from a distance, like it was doing what it was meant to, came up empty. And verses 15 to 17 make it very clear that Jesus felt the same way about what he found at the temple. From a distance, it looked like it was the center of what we would think of as a thriving church, God's people doing God's work. But it's not. That's not what he finds. And just as it wasn't the season for figs, it wasn't the season, it wasn't the time for Jesus to find what he was looking for in the temple, in the religious community as a whole in Jerusalem. Like the fig tree, The temple isn't producing the fruit that it's meant to produce. And like the fig tree, it will wither. In Luke's version of these events, uh, when Jesus comes into sight of Jerusalem, he weeps. And he says this, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The cursing of the fig tree is a picture of judgment coming on the temple. The cursing of the fig tree is a picture of the temple being destroyed again, uh, as it will be some years after this. It's a prophecy of a sort. 
Why? Because it wasn't producing the fruit that it was meant to produce. I promise to make it clear that this is not the story of Jesus having a temper tantrum, but I really, really carefully didn't promise to make this comfortable. As with the donkey, this is a really deliberate action on Jesus' part. He's telling us who and what he is by the action that he's taking with this fig tree. And actually what he's telling us is that he will judge. What he's telling us is that he's looking for fruit. He's not looking for leaves. And that applies to us as well. So let me speak to you now if you're somebody who's been involved in the church for a while, but you haven't made a personal commitment to Jesus as your saviour. That old bumper sticker joke, Jesus is coming, look busy. It's wrong. It's the wrong way round. Busyness is leaves. Busyness, even serving the church, is leaves. Going through the motions, that's leaves. And we see what happens to trees that only have leaves on them. Now the challenge for you this morning is that one day Jesus is coming, so get into a relationship with him. That's the fruit. That's what we're made for. That's our purpose. That's what we're meant to produce, is that relationship. And that's the fruit that he wants to see. And then get busy. Then do church work. But have the fruit, not just the leaves. My final point for this morning is is the fullness of his calling. We've seen that this passage speaks to people who haven't yet decided who they think Jesus is, and it speaks to people who have been involved in church life, perhaps, but haven't yet made that personal commitment. But what about people who have made the commitment? What's here for us? Well, there's a challenge for us too. One of the difficulties with studying anything is the first way you understand it can get stuck in your head and it can be really difficult to move on. And particularly with these stories that, you know, if you grew up in the church, you've been hearing this your whole life. You can misunderstand. We have to be really careful about that with the Bible. The way we understand a passage the first time we come to it, when perhaps we're young or perhaps we're new Christians or perhaps we just haven't studied as much, we haven't got the full context. Maybe we're using a study that has a particular angle on events where it might not be everything that's going on in a particular passage. And that, for me, is the case with the passage with the dove sellers and the money changers. Growing up, I think I'd understood this as Jesus is angry because people are doing commerce, right? They're buying and selling, not praying and worshipping. I think I'd always understood that when he called them robbers, he's implying that they're ripping people off. They're taking advantage of their position in the temple to sell them doves for more than the doves were really worth, exploiting the people who were just coming here to do their worship. And that gave me something that I could understand, an easy example to follow. Don't exploit faith for material gain. Don't be one of those televangelists, right, with the premium phone line and merchandise for every occasion. And I'm pleased to say I've avoided that. But of course, later in life, I realized I just hadn't understood the passage properly. And as so often, I'd given myself a nice easy way that I could feel like I was doing what it said. When I really looked into it, it's much more complicated than that. There are lots of verses in the Old Testament about how holy the temple was. 
and about not being greedy, not taking advantage of people. If those were the points that Jesus wanted to make, he was spoiled for choice. He had lots of uh, verses that he could quote from the law to make his point, but he didn't. He didn't. He chose a quote from Isaiah that the temple should be a house of prayer for all nations. Well, why is that? Look at verse 15. Where does this all take place? In the temple courts. So the temple courts are the area around the main building. And under the Old Testament law, that's as close to the temple as the Gentiles were allowed to go. Jews could go further in. The Gentiles were restricted to the courts. So that's the place where the Gentiles are meant to go to pray. That's the place where the Gentiles are meant to worship. That's the place where people are meant to be out explaining the law, preaching to the Gentiles, helping them to understand, drawing them in. That's what the temple courts were for. The temple gives a focal point. And then around the temple there's a space for people who aren't there yet. There's a space for people who can be drawn in. But what's going on there instead? People are selling doves. Things that were needed for sacrifice in the temple. People are changing money to the special temple coins that were needed for rituals in the temple. Jewish worshippers could have brought those things from elsewhere in the city and come to the temple with them. But of course, the closer the stalls are to the temple, the more convenient, right? If you show up and you've forgotten your dove or you've forgotten your coin, well, you can pick one up on the way in. Makes it easier for the Jewish worshippers. That's why Jesus uses the specific phrase, den of robbers. That's another quote. It's nothing to do with the price that they're choosing. It's from Jeremiah, chapter 7. And this was a prophecy that God gave to Jeremiah and said, stand outside the gate of the temple and say this to everybody who's coming in. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? That's the charge that Jeremiah was laying on uh, the people of Judah. They were outright saying that because they had this special place, because they came and did their rituals, God would protect them. They were treating the temple like a criminal treats their hideout. If they can get back there, then they're fine. As long as they do their religion, they're fine. So in verse 17, Jesus is drawing a direct comparison. Jesus is saying to Jerusalem, you've missed the point of the temple courts. The point of the courts is to draw the outsider in, not to make sure that you have everything you need to go and do your worship in the temple. That's not what they're for. Using that space for your own convenience to make your worship go smoothly, rather than for the outreach it was meant for, is just as bad as what people were doing in Jeremiah's time, it's putting your faith in what you do in the middle. And that's not what it's for. So that's the challenge for us this morning, if we've made that commitment. The temple is the model for our lives, individually and together as a church. Our faith must be the centre. Our relationship with God, our meeting with God, our worship of God, our involvement with the people of God... All of those things that the temple stood for, 
That should be the core of our lives. But it mustn't be everything. There's supposed to be space in our lives for non-believers, just like the temple courts. They're supposed to get close enough to the faith, to the temple, at the core of our lives, that they will be drawn to God. And that's a tough balance for us to strike, and that's why I called it a challenge. Some of us will have filled the temple courts with dove sellers. Some of us will have packed our lives so full of Christian things that make it easier and, and more comfortable and more convenient for us that we've left no space at all for non-Christians, or not to really engage. And then others of us will have gone the opposite way, and our temple courts will be so massive that the temple will be barely visible in the middle. We've spent so much time engaging with non-Christians that they just can't see our faith at all. Neither one of those is right. The rebuke that Jesus gives to the temple authorities here is, is a rebuke to all of us, whichever of those two buckets we fall into. The picture of the temple, that, that balance that Jesus wants to bring them back into is of the relationship with God as a clear center and then some space around it for the unbelievers to see it in our lives. That's the model. So whatever stage you're at with things, I hope this has given you something to think about this morning. The Easter period is a, is a really great time of year for us to take a really honest look at where we stand, right? If you're thinking about these things, if you're not sure, if you want to hear more, the program for Passion for Life is really fantastic. There will be some powerful testimonies there in a couple of weeks. Go along and hear what's being said, and it'll give you all kinds of food for thought. If you haven't decided for yourself who Jesus is, the challenge for you is that his claim is clear. You can refuse him, or you can accept him, but you shouldn't ignore him. If you've been coming to church for some time but haven't made that personal commitment, the challenge for you is that his judgment is stark. He doesn't want leaves. He wants fruit. He doesn't want church going. He wants faith. And if you have made the commitment, well, the challenge for you is that we're called to live in the world but not of the world. We're called to have space in our lives to engage properly with people who don't know him, but not to allow that to overwhelm our central relationship with him and with his people. Let's pray for a second. Father, you've told us that uh, coming to your word is like catching sight of our faces in the mirror, seeing what we look like, uh, and that people who walk away and immediately forget uh, have done the wrong thing. Father, we pray that we would be people who will walk away from this remembering what we look like, that we'd be determined to, um, to take the next step, whatever that may be, in the challenge that you've put before us this morning. For your son's sake. Amen.